When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It's Advent, which means a time of preparation. Traditionally, for the church, that means the four weeks leading up to receiving Christmas, to receiving Christ. On the Advent calendar, week one is all about hope. Can we talk about the current state of how we use the word hope? I hope this pimple goes away. I hope he likes me back. I hope I make the team. I hope I did okay on the SAT. I hope to travel more next year. I hope he proposes this year. I hope I get a raise. I hope Pastor Matt's message is really short this morning. What are you noticing? With each of these examples, you can almost picture someone about to blow out the candles on their birthday cake, right? Or you can picture someone with uh, a penny ready to toss it into the well. Because the word hope is simply being used to describe wishful thinking. As if there's a cosmic genie that may or may not recognize my hope and grant the wish. Well, here's where we need to start this morning. When it comes to Advent and our preparing to receive the Christ, when it comes to Christian hope, this is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about wishful thinking. Biblical hope is different. Biblical hope is about expectation. It's about assured confidence in the arrival of rescue. It's about trusting a promise. Biblical hope is about being able to wait contentedly and optimistically because you have a promise from someone or something that you have deemed trustworthy. And hope is about having the capacity to endure seasons and time while the trustworthiness of that person or thing is expressed through that promise being fulfilled. When it comes to hope and not birthday cake wishful thinking, there's a promise involved. 
And, and here's the first big idea for this morning. There is a direct correlation between your capacity to hope for something and the trustworthiness of the thing or person you're putting your hope in. There's a correlation between your level of expectation, i.e. your hope, and the trustworthiness of whoever or whatever has made you a promise. So, for example, 18 months ago, the Komar family signed up for an internet plan that came along with some promises. Now, we were promised, among other things, a new Chromebook. So, we have yet to see the Chromebook. And needless to say, I am not currently holding my breath. This past summer, when we thought we needed to get Caleb a laptop for his current school year, we weren't building our strategy around this company's promise. I had an extremely low level of hope for this promise to be fulfilled. My capacity to wait expectantly was very low. Why? Well, because I didn't, and I still don't, deem the promiser as being very trustworthy. Okay, this is incredibly important to understand about hope. And it's so simple, but I just got to say it again. My capacity to hope for something is directly related to the trustworthiness of who or what I'm putting my hope in. Now, if we had determined that that internet company was actually trustworthy, we would not have felt the pressure to go buy a computer for Caleb. We would have said, no, we can wait. The Chromebook is coming. It was promised. We don't have to go out and take care of this or solve this problem another way or our own way. Now, real quick, before I move on, I want to take just another minute or two to highlight the tension around this because it's why I believe today's message is so important because we're in a world in desperate need of hope. We're seeing more expressions of hopelessness than ever before. So can we take quick stock of some things out there making promises to us And then think about how trustworthy those things are. So for instance, the lottery or the stock market promises to us riches, wealth, comfort, and abundance. How trustworthy is the lottery or the stock market? The college board promises our future, like with the right transcript of AP courses and a high enough SAT score, my future is set according to the promises of the college board. But how about even deeper? Ideas like how self-determination promises us freedom. Hyper-individualism promises us our identity. Consumerism promises us happiness. And careerism promises us identity and meaning. It's no wonder we're so anxious. All of these really, really, really important things are in the hands of these ideas or organizations that, that maybe aren't so trustworthy. Okay, actually, that's an understatement. They're not trustworthy at all. They don't care about me. They don't love me. Those ideas, those organizations, they can't move on my behalf. Like, What has hyper-individualism ever done for me besides give me a false sense of control over my own life? What has consumerism ever done for me besides drain my bank account 
and fill my closets with stuff I use rarely. Here's a question. Like, is our world growing increasingly hopeless because we're running out of people we can deem truly trustworthy? Is our world becoming increasingly hopeless because we're running out of systems, organizations, ideas that we can deem truly trustworthy? Are we running very low on hope because we are clinging to promises made by ideas and organizations that are not nearly as trustworthy as my soul longs for? Now, the final question before we move on. Is there one who loves me and who can act on my behalf and who wants the best for me and who has the power to actually multiply my peace and my freedom and my meaning? So just a bit ago, we read from the Gospel of Luke a story about a man who had built his whole life around a promise. We're going to spend some time this morning doing a deep dive on this man, Simeon, because I believe that if we can hope the way he hoped, we too will see Jesus show up in our lives and we will see our, our hope take off exponentially. Do you want to see Jesus show up in your life? Okay, let's dig into it. Luke chapter 2, verse 25 says this. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Okay, so here's what we can draw from that. Number one, everyone knew Simeon. He had a reputation. And Luke tells us three things about his reputation. He was known for his character, his practice, and his resolution, his CPR. Okay, number one, Luke tells us he was righteous. This was his character. The word Luke uses is dikaios which means innocent, holy, just, one who acts alike to all, impartial. He was a good guy. He was a man who maintained right relationships with others. He wasn't an egomaniac. He wasn't a status seeker. He had a sober view of himself and others. Number one, he was righteous. Number two, he was devout. This was his practice. The word Luke uses is eulabes, which, which means reverent and circumspect. He wasn't the kind of guy to see a pool, like strip off his sandals and tunic and go dive in. He was circumspect and reverent. His approach was tempered. He sees the pool. He takes off his, his shoes. He goes every few feet, dips his toe in the water, checking it out. He checks the depths. Picture Moses approaching the burning bush with caution. You don't run right up to it. Luke is giving us insight into Simeon's patterns and rhythms. He was a man described as being diligent and wise. Now, neat side note here, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but, but wisdom and hope very much go hand in hand because hope is an exercise in delayed gratification. Hope means you're guided by a trustworthy promise. And having a trustworthy promise 
gives you a center you can build your life around. It gives you the ability to say yes to things in line with your center and the lens through which to say no to things that are not in line with your center. Hope increases your ability to pursue wise things and reject foolish things. Now, when I have no hope, I just say yes to the next quick hit. I say yes to the next available chance for something satisfying. I become a person all about instant gratification. I become someone who severely lacks self-discipline. Hopeful people, on the other hand, are marked by self-discipline and wisdom because they build their lives around trustworthy promises made by trustworthy promisers. Now, Luke tells us that Simeon was righteous and devout and that he was looking forward to the consolation of Israel because God promised him he would see the Messiah before he died. Now, right here is why we're really talking about Simeon today because he was, as Luke says, looking forward to. In other words, he was a man of tremendous hope. He was building his life around what he considered to be a very trustworthy promise. He was building his life so intensely around this promise that when the promise was fulfilled, Simeon's exclamation was, oh, I can die now, right? Like, because everything he had building his life around had been fulfilled. He was good. Now, here's my favorite part of this morning's message. This question, where does Simeon's hope come from? Where does his maximum capacity for diligent, optimistic expectation come from? What fueled Simeon's faithfulness in waiting for a promise to be fulfilled? Okay, one, because of his deep connection to the scriptures, he had a context for the great promise that came from the great promiser. In other words, he had a deep understanding of the story of the world in terms of who God was, why we're alive, how we became in need of a great promise from God, and what that great promise was. Okay, let me illustrate in three frames. So, Simeon understood that our existence was much more than a cosmic accident. He understands that what we are experiencing on this earth is ordered and that it was ordered for a purpose, that it reflects the brilliance and the intention of God, and that all of it is meant for us to enjoy together with God. These ideas for Simeon were all found in the very first movements in his scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2. An incredible picture of God hard at work preparing for us a place that is exquisite and glorious and functions in a way that allows for thriving. God separating light from dark. God separating the waters from above from the waters below. God separating the the waters from the land. God setting out the plants in the garden and the pets in the yard. And then finally, on the last day, when it's all set, when everything is just right, his kids, his beloved, the bearers of his image, the prize of all creation, us. And the picture Simeon had in his mind of how he views God in this scene is everything. It was the backdrop for the promise he was clinging to. Now, 
Simeon's imagination understood as, as God being right here on a bent knee, proposing relationship with us. Now, the scriptures tell us that in this first frame where God and humans are together, this is God's posture, the great promiser before mankind, blessing them. And this is what the scripture says. This is God bless them. And that word for blessing is the Hebrew word barak, which literally means a bent knee. This is Simeon's picture of God in this first frame, proposing relationship and an adventure full of joy and peace with mankind. Simeon's imagination was captivated by this vision. He had a deep understanding and a deep connection to the story of the world in terms of who God was and why we're alive right here. But more than that, Simeon's immersion in the scriptures gave him a context for how we became in need of a great promise from God and what that promise was. Because the scriptures tell us the story of how humanity constantly responds to God's proposal. In Genesis 3, we have a story about the humans in the garden deceived by a lie that they could establish their own order on this planet, that they could choose for themselves, that we could choose for ourselves our own boundaries and decide for ourselves what right and wrong would be, and that we could do it all apart from God. Now, Genesis 3 captures the story of humanity's rejection of this proposal. And Simeon understood that human rejection of God caused a deep relational chasm between humans and God. And he understood the effects this would have on humans over here, apart from God. How we would grow increasingly disconnected from why we're alive. How we would begin to vie for dominance on this planet because we're no longer connected to the one true king. How we will begin to set up for ourselves our own kings and our own kingdoms and build our own hierarchies fighting for survival at all costs. And because it's about survival, we become willing to do the things that are unrighteous. We put ourselves first. We make and break promises. We exercise greed. We pursue as God things that aren't God, pleasures, money, idols, because we're no longer allowing the one true king to define right and wrong for us we can begin to define right and wrong for ourselves, doing what's right in our own eyes. And we become, as Jesus would later describe us, as sheep without a shepherd, following ourselves and others in a kind of blind, leading the blind way, where human dignity is compromised at almost every turn. So, in other words, if this is heaven over here, then we create, over here apart from God, hell. But Simeon studied the scriptures. And what he noticed, and what we can also notice, is how over and over and over again, they pointed to God's plan to bridge this gap, to restore creation, to bring about his original plan and see that his dreams for creation become fully realized. This is Almost the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures, snapshots of the chaos 
we create over here without God and signposts pointing to our need for a savior. Now, Simeon's great capacity for hope was rooted in his understanding that there is a promise for this here in the middle. This is what God promised to Simeon that he would see before he died. That Simeon would see the one who could bridge the chasm between God and man. The one who could provide for us a way back to be reconciled to God. The one who could open our eyes to see the madness of this scene-to chaos and show us what it means to live a scene-one life. Simeon understood what was being promised because of his deep connection to the scriptures. And because of that same connection, he had a massive body of evidence to prove the trustworthiness of the promiser. In other words, in Simeon's eyes, the one who promised this is the one who had already made good in his promise to Abraham and Sarah when it came to their descendants. The one who had made good in elevating Joseph's status to the number two in all of Egypt. The one who parted the Red Sea and sent manna from heaven and who had made water come from a rock and who outlined commandments on a mountain that elevated human beings above survival tribes and warfare and the one who caused the walls of Jericho to crumble at the sounds of trumpets and keep the mouths of lions closed to preserve Daniel's death. The one who orchestrated Esther's rise to influence and ultimately the preservation of the Jews time after time after time after time. Simeon understood that the one who had promised that he would see that bridge is the one who had already proved himself faithful. And as a result, it fueled his hope. It enabled him to build a disciplined, wise, hopeful life that was righteous and devout. So to bring this to a close, I just want to highlight a few takeaways. For some of us, I actually feel like the most important takeaway might not have anything specifically to do with hope, but maybe the, the most important takeaway was the peek into how we became separated from God and how we need to be reconciled to God. Some of us here this morning are ready to be reconciled to God because we're tired of the chaos happening over here on the ledge apart from God in scene two. The fight for survival has become too exhausting and it's time for a better way. It's time for God's scene one dream for our lives to become a reality. And that means for all of humanity to be reconciled to God, but it also means that you take that step. I know for me, uh, when I took that step, it meant acknowledging my role in creating that chasm between me and God. And it meant recognizing Jesus the King as the bridge, recognizing that He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
And it meant me choosing to follow Jesus. So this morning, I want to extend the invitation for you to make that choice. That in these next few minutes, if you're wrestling with that, that that might be the thing that you do, that you finally decide here this morning that you are going to put your trust in Jesus, that you are going to evaluate Christ as the great promiser and the great promises, and that you are going to choose to follow Jesus. For many of us, though, what we needed to take away from this message was the challenge to take a hope inventory. We've been holding on to the promises of very untrustworthy ideas, organizations, people. And as a result, our lives lack the kind of hope that fuels discipline and wisdom and optimistic expectation. When it comes to my peace and my freedom and my abundance and my identity, I may have been putting my hope in self-determination, hyper-individualism, careerism, the stock market, my friends, a political party. The list goes on. Some of us need to spend time this week making a list. What promises am I building my life around? Who or what is the promiser and how trustworthy is that promiser? Finally, some of us simply needed to be reminded of the promises of Jesus the King. And we needed to be reminded of how trustworthy he is. So in closing, I'll just say this. You will not find a promiser more trustworthy than Jesus the Christ. By his life, teachings, miracles, love, compassion, service, sacrifice, death, and resurrection from the dead, Jesus more than proved his trustworthiness. And his are the promises we can build our lives around and experience maximum hope. Now he has promised that if we seek first the kingdom of God, all things will be added unto us. He has promised that putting his teaching into practice means that we will become like a person who builds their house on a rock someone who is unshakable by any storm or trial this life can bring our way. He's promised to represent us before God and to present us as faultless before the Father. He's promised to give us purpose and guidance and a place in his kingdom. And he has promised to give us grace and mercy unending. Let me pray. Father, we're so grateful uh, that, that you have given us this massive body of evidence that shows us your character so that we can lean into you as being fully trustworthy. And we thank you for your promises. They're so good and they're so powerful. And Lord, our prayer is that you would give us the strength to lean into your promises to build our lives around them and become people of maximum level hope. Lord, help us to see the promises that we are building our lives around that are made by untrustworthy sources. Help us to identify them and walk away from them. Help us to walk 
toward your promises and your good. In Jesus' name, amen.